Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 3. Let's talk about sex, maybe. Sex education in U.S. public schools. I suppose it's a maxim of any form of entertainment media that sex and violence get people's attention, and podcasts are no exception. Let it not be said that I am above playing on those hooks to get listeners myself, so long as it's in the surface of my greater mission to illuminate aspects of American schooling that are frequently poorly understood. So, this episode will be about the sex, and the next one, about corporal punishment in schools, will be about the violence. I suppose it is probably in my best interests to issue a quick warning that, in this episode, in the wry words of NPR's Ira Glass, we acknowledge the existence of sex. In fact, we'll do it right from the outset. Human beings have sex. They always have. They always will, if for no other reason than we will likely want to keep having more human beings. Until cloning technology improves significantly, there's really no alternative. Furthermore, I have it on good authority that human beings also frequently engage in sex for reasons that have nothing to do with reproduction, and more to do with the fact that the act has a lot of potential in and of itself to be pleasurable. Okay, all that said, human beings are capable of having reproductive sex as of puberty, and that means in our present-day configuration of society in the United States. People are students in middle or high school at the time they experience the biological changes, including the biological desires, to engage in sex. People can and have been puzzling out the mechanics of how sex works without any formal instruction how to do so for a very long time. But sex comes with consequences. Consequences that can affect the emotional and medical health of the participants and that have impact on their families and the larger communities in which they live. Hence the idea that formal education might have a role to play in helping young people understand sex so that they can make better informed decisions about when, how, and if to engage in it. That's one view held by some Americans, anyway, that knowing more about the biological, psychological, and emotional facts of sex will lead to better mental and physical health and fewer risk-taking behaviors. The other view, held by many other Americans, is that this very education is likely to increase risk-taking behaviors Spoiler alert, the overwhelming majority of the data, domestically and internationally, supports the first group's belief and not the second. But the second group makes the additional argument that topics concerning sex and sexuality are simply not the proper purview of public schooling. Public schools as democratic institutions reflect the priorities and values of the people of the communities in which they operate. The story of sex education in United States schools has in many ways been the story of that struggle, between those who see a role for schools in teaching young people about their anatomy, the mechanisms of sexuality, their sexual health, and their romantic relationships, and those who feel such topics either belong in the home or belong nowhere, that their very discussion constitutes a breach in moral thinking and conduct. In this episode, I'm going to take you through a history of various attempts and movements in sex education in United States schools, and as you'll soon discover, this is anything but a unified narrative. It's a series of stories chronicling disparate efforts that, spoiler alert once more, remain highly disparate and uneven to this day. As hard as it is to talk about any facet of, quote, American public education, because of how highly variegated schools are, sex ed is perhaps the most variegated of all programs in American schools. What it consists of, how early it starts, and whether it exists at all is a matter for disagreement 
across the country, within states, within school districts, and even sometimes within the walls of a single school. These disagreements go back at least as far as the early 19th century, where some of the first advocates of formalized sex education in schools wanted that education to essentially consist of teaching kids to suppress and sublimate any sexual urges at all costs. In the words of one early sex education manual, quote, we teach the girl repression, the boy expression, not simply by word and book, but the lessons are graven into their very being by all traditions, prejudices, and customs of society, unquote. You can imagine how that mission shaped the kind of information that these programs contained and how they presented it. The Social Purity Movement, yes, that was the actual name, wound up attracting this weird synthesis of medical professionals with Christian moralists, a convergence of conservative and progressive agendas the likes of which seems a little hard to conceive of today. But the Social Purity Movement was wide enough to contain doctors who were trying to gather and disseminate data on sexual and reproductive health, and also religious folk who wanted to talk about spiritual health. You also had social progressives and conservatives both agreeing that pornography and prostitution were generally bad things. Early feminists promoted female sexual independence and rights to pleasure, while religious conservatives focused on the value of chastity and on training women to be responsible mothers. And yes, if you're noticing, somehow the focus seems to be mainly on girls and women, which the last time I checked leaves out about 50% of the target audience. Now, I don't want to present this social purity movement coalition, or series of coalitions, as some sort of big happy kumbaya. I mean, as far as the gamut went, on one hand you had, to pick one example, Reverend Todd's A Student Manual, which sold over 100,000 copies in the mid-1800s. It was basically full of misinformation and scare tactics for teenagers, including warning young men that having more sex would drain them of their vitality and keep them from getting good jobs. And on the other hand, you had folks like Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S., whose book advised mothers to teach their children the real facts about sex as early as possible so they could lead more fulfilling sexual lives as they got older. Of course, one thing that made leading a fulfilling sexual life much more complicated, especially for women, was the Comstock Act of 1873, which made the dissemination of any information about birth control and the sale of contraceptives illegal. So, yeah, sex education, such as it was, when you did see it, had, shall we say, limited applications. Anthony Comstock, for whom the law was named, was neither a doctor nor a politician, for that matter. He was actually a postal inspector. Well, to be really accurate, a volunteer postal inspector, who took it as his life's mission to ensure that no Americans would be using the mail to distribute material that he deemed to be sexually immoral. Proving that you don't need the internet or talk radio to become an amateur demagogue, Comstock prefigured folks like Alex Jones or Glenn Beck in whipping up a following of zealous adherents who overrepresented themselves in the media discourse of the day, attacking not only sex educators, but also women suffragists and anyone else he decided was corrupting American values. And all of this press led some wary politicians, business leaders, and educators to self-censor rather than draw down the wrath of his army of trolls by the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If trolls are unfortunately a long-time staple of American history, so too are those with the courage to stand up to them. Ella Flagg Young, superintendent of the Chicago Public Schools and the first woman to be elected president of the National Education Association, was one of those people. Ironically, Ella had barely attended formal schooling at all herself. She didn't go to school until age 10, taught herself how to read and write, and dropped out of school after only a few months because she felt her teachers just weren't challenging her. 
Despite active opposition from her parents, at age 15, Ella took the certification exam to become a teacher and passed, to be promptly told by the state that she was too young to practice, at which point Ella promptly ignored said directive and just set up her own teaching practicum with a cooperating teacher, and after a successful year decided that, yes, this profession was for her. She eventually studied at the Chicago Normal School, ground zero for American progressive education, run by W. Francis Parker, and we talked a lot about both him and the women who ran the show behind him, and the Chicago Normal School itself in Season 2, Episode 2. It's worth checking out if you haven't already. Ella later studied at the University of Chicago under one of Parker's protégés, this obscure educational scholar by the name of John Dewey, you might have heard of him, and eventually earned her PhD. Ella Flagg married William Young, only to be widowed at age 27, with no children and her parents and siblings had also passed away, so Ella basically decided to devote her life to teaching. She went on to become a professor of education at the University of Chicago in 1899, to run the Chicago Normal School herself in 1905, and eventually to the superintendency of Chicago's public schools in 1909, the first woman in America to head a large city school system. In her role as superintendent, Ella Young proposed a series of three one-hour lectures to gender-separated groups of students on the topics of biology, venereal disease, and abstinence until marriage. Again, a Victorian version of Christian morality still permeated sex ed efforts at the time, but even this was considered too radical for Chicagoans who felt that any discussion of sex whatsoever should be off the table where school was concerned. As such, her program ran for only one year, 1913 to 1914, before opposition forced not only it, but Ella herself, out of the Chicago schools. Still, her efforts marked the first ever formal sex education course in a public school system, and over 20,000 students wound up participating. Ella would shortly thereafter die in the flu pandemic of 1918. Now, Ella Flagg Young's efforts had not been operating in a vacuum. Sex education had another contemporary champion, albeit a somewhat unlikely one, in the form of a dermatologist from New York named Prince A. Morrow, who spent a post-med school year in Europe, and, if you'll pardon the hideous use of the idiom, caught the bug of interest in STD research. Upon his return, he became a national leader in promoting mass sex education, spearheaded by what became known as the Social Hygiene Movement, which targeted school children with pamphlets and in-school workshops, with advice about how to prevent sexually transmitted diseases, along with general advice about cleanliness and, once again, Victorian Christian morality. And it was this aspect that did hamstring, from a contemporary perspective, the effectiveness of the organization that Morrow started, the American Federation for Sex Hygiene. Specifically, Morrow insisted that any content the organization produced for use with schoolchildren have, quote, no study of external human anatomy and very limited study of internal anatomy, unquote. So you can imagine how that might limit effective sex education. Ella Flagg Young's program, by contrast, had featured anatomy as a key component. Ironically, the biggest boost to the idea of sex education in American public schools came not from the medical establishment, devoted to the preservation of life, but from the institution of warfare, devoted as it is to, well, the taking of human life. Wow, it looks like we're mixing sex and violence already. The entry of the United States into the First World War required the first implementation of a military draft since the Civil War, and the War Department assembled training camps around the country, and later in Europe, in order to mobilize and prepare what would grow to be four million young men for combat. Concentrating all those young men together led to all sorts of activities that the military wasn't too keen for them to be engaging in, such as wild drunken parties and an awful lot of sex. 
sex with local women, sex with prostitutes, sex with one another, and all of that sex wound up leading to an awful lot of sexually transmitted diseases. At the height of what would become a new public health crisis, as many as a third of U.S. soldiers had contracted sexually transmitted illnesses. I'm not an expert in warfare, but I'm pretty sure that it's hard to win a war if your soldiers are so busy suffering from syphilis and gonorrhea that they can't lift a rifle or charge at trenches. It got so bad that the Secretary of War himself commissioned a special report to look into it, conducted by a lawyer named, and I swear I could not make this up, Raymond Fosdick. Fosdick's report placed the blame for all of that sexually transmitted disease squarely on prostitution. It led to the passage of the Chamberlain Con Act of 1918, which, in a stunning but unfortunately not surprising display of misogyny, decided to deal with the problem of out-of-control young men by empowering law enforcement to arrest and detain women. Any woman, in fact, found within five miles of a military cantonment, and force her to undertake a test for STDs. If the test rendered a positive result, that result could in and of itself constitute sufficient proof of prostitution whereupon the poor woman could be sentenced to confinement in a hospital, or something called a farm colony. During the course of the war, over 15,000 women were arrested and relocated in this manner, most of whom never received any medical attention at all. But another thing the Chamberlain Con Act created, besides a weird prefiguration of The Handmaid's Tale, was sex education programs for the soldiers, mainly organized around how to avoid contracting STDs. And indeed, STD rates declined after the implementation of this program, a later report in 1919 by the U.S. Department of Labor's Children's Bureau suggested that, hey, had these young men learned this same information as a part of their regular schooling growing up, we could maybe have avoided much of this whole STD problem from the get-go. Once the Chamberlain Con Act put STDs on the public radar and started promoting sex ed as a public health imperative, worries about threatening the moral purity of America started to pale compared to worries about, well, everybody getting syphilis. Soon the American Medical Association itself hopped on board, and all over the nation, sex education efforts of one form or another got a new lease on life. In 1920, the U.S. Public Health Service and the U.S. Bureau of Education teamed up to survey high schools across the nation as to where and how sex education was figuring in their curriculum. Remember, there was not then, and to a large extent still is not now, a unified curriculum for schools across the United States or even across any given state. What schools taught and how they taught was almost exclusively decided, mostly now and very much then, at the district or even the individual school or classroom level. 6,500 schools responded to the survey and revealed that 40% of them were teaching some form or another of sex education. This was actually a much higher number than the researchers had expected. The study also found that 85% of school principals believed there needed to be sex education taught in school, regardless of whether their school was offering it or not. It's important to look at the social context in which this was all happening as well. The Roaring Twenties, when many Americans, especially American women, were pushing the boundaries of traditional restrictions on clothing, hairstyles, music, dancing, dating. It was the era of jazz, of flappers, of speakeasies. And high school educators were saying, look, we've got students who have far more liberal sexual attitudes than their parents' generation had. We really need to help them understand how to be healthy and safe as they exercise all these new freedoms. But for every revolution, there is always a backlash. And throughout the 1920s, what sex education that existed tended to be what teachers managed to sneak into classes that weren't labeled as sex education. 
Lessons about human anatomy, reproduction, and health could be worked into biology classes, while classes like home economics began to quietly introduce information about healthy romantic relationships. In this way, educators could help students learn about such topics without running afoul of opposition on so-called moral grounds, or even, remember the Comstock Act, legal grounds as well. Then came the 1930s, when women's health advocate Margaret Sanger helped remove that particular obstacle. Famous for her tireless activism, including her willingness to be imprisoned in favor of women's reproductive rights, Sanger would play a key role in the overturning of the Comstock Laws in 1936, and went on to found the organization that would one day become known as Planned Parenthood. Thanks to Sanger and her allies, sharing information about birth control was no longer illegal, and the publication of Indiana University professor Alfred Kinsey's research on the sexual lives of Americans in the 1940s and 50s would help normalize discussion of the topic for millions of American households. The Kinsey reports were New York Times bestsellers and helped many, if not all, Americans begin to view sexuality and morality in separate spheres. Then came the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, which, while not embraced universally across all segments of American society, nevertheless shifted general public norms about the acceptability of premarital sex and the discussion of sexual matters in general, even if one wasn't a flower-carrying, free-love-embracing hippie star child. Medical developments like the birth control pill and legal rulings like Roe v. Wade gave young people more freedom to experiment sexually without having to face all the consequences of becoming parents, and books like Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl became bestsellers. In 1964, Margaret Sanger's successor as head of Planned Parenthood, Dr. Mary Calderon, managed to convince the American Medical Association to reverse their own policy against education about birth control. Later that year, Calderon resigned from Planned Parenthood to establish a new organization, the Sex Information and Education Council of the United States, Incorporated, or SECUS, which published books, wrote curriculum, and conducted workshops for school administrators, sex educators, physicians, social activists, and parents, so they could all get access to reliable and medically accurate sex education information. Two years later, that information would become even more reliable and medically accurate when Dr. William Masters and Virginia Johnson, researchers and eventually marital partners, published The Human Sexual Response, to date, the most in-depth and medically precise exploration and description of human sexual behaviors from biological and psychological points of view. The book gave doctors and educators alike a common, research-based scientific language for addressing issues of human sexuality. A year after that, psychologist and lawyer Patricia Schiller created the American Association for Sex Educators and Counselors and Therapists, which established training standards for sex educators. It's still around today and remains the most respected certifier of sexual health practitioners. SICA still exists today as well, and they produce their own podcast, which, since every single episode is literally about sex, likely has a much higher download count than mine. By the early 1970s, AASECT had certified hundreds of sex educators. But even after all of this flowering of sex education, how many schools across the United States were actually incorporating all of this into their sex ed classes? Well, as it turned out, not all that many. When you came down to it, there was still a solid core of people who wanted schools to play no part whatsoever in the sexual education of children. They believed that such sensitive matters should be up to parents and families to educate or not educate as they saw fit, 
and that to bring up such topics in school could violate religious beliefs and introduce ideas kids weren't ready for, or even promote sexual behavior. It wasn't until 1980 that any states at all began mandating sex ed in all schools. The first was New Jersey, and I'll let you draw whatever conclusions you want to about that. By the end of that year, only two other states had joined. But then, just like in 1918, an STD epidemic changed the playing field. This time, that STD was HIV-AIDS, and the panic it created spurred 47 out of the 50 states to adopt some form of AIDS-HIV education by the early 1990s. Of course, what form that education took varied widely. As a gross oversimplification, the AIDS epidemic gave rise to two major trends in school sex ed programs. Comprehensive sex education that moved beyond just disease prevention to explore reproductive biology and psychology in detail, including methods of contraception and the wide variation in human sexuality and sexual identity on the one hand, and on the other hand, the ideological successor to Nancy Reagan's just-say-no approach to drug use, the abstinence-only approach to sex education. Programs that fall under this umbrella, also known as sexual risk avoidance programs, forward a philosophy that abstinence from sex is the only 100% safe and effective way to prevent both disease and unwanted pregnancy, which, to be fair, is true. However, such programs often begin and end with that premise, and do not generally discuss contraceptive methods of any sort, except insofar as highlighting whatever deficits and failure rates they might have. Often, but not always, these programs heavily feature a morality lens, arguing against premarital sex on moral grounds. Sometimes this extends to arguments about the socio-emotional benefits of waiting until marriage before exploring one's sexual development. Research comparing and contrasting the effectiveness of comprehensive versus abstinence-only sex education, at least insofar as impact on rates of both teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, is remarkably clear. Nearly every major study comparing the two shows better outcomes for comprehensive sex education than for its abstinence-only counterpart. This and the fact that the states with the highest rates of teen pregnancy were those where abstinence-only education programs dominated school curricula led the American Academy of Pediatrics to recommend against the use of abstinence-only sex education. Nevertheless, an immense amount of money has flowed to abstinence-only education programs, or AOE for short, thanks to bipartisan support. Starting in 1981, the Adolescent Family Life Act, or AFLA, introduced by Oklahoma Democrat James Jones and signed into law by Republican President Ronald Reagan, made available over $10 million to sex education programs across the United States, but only on the condition that said programs emphasize abstinence. The fact that so much of this money wound up flowing to religious-sponsored organizations led to a Supreme Court challenge on First Amendment separation of church and state grounds, but the court upheld the law. A subsequent case in 1993, however, led the court to rule that these programs themselves could not actively promote any religious content. In 1996, the Welfare Reform, TANF Act, signed by Democratic President Bill Clinton, allocated $50 million a year to states specifically for AOE programs, and four years later, President Clinton made available additional monies through the Community-Based Abstinence Education Program, allocated directly from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which superseded any and all state standards for sex education, replacing them with an eight-point definition of abstinence that needed to be met in order for a program to receive funding from CBAE. Those eight points, if you're curious, included 
quote, it should be communicated that abstinence is the expected standard in America, unquote. Quote, abstinence is the only way to prevent unwanted pregnancy and STIs, unquote. Quote, any sex outside of marriage is harmful, both physically and mentally, unquote. Quote, raising a child out of wedlock is harmful for both the baby and the parent, unquote. And that training on how to reject sexual advances was required to be included. The only way such programs could include information about contraception was through the sole focus on its failure rates. To be clear, the federal government wasn't saying that sex education had to meet all of these standards or it couldn't be taught in schools. It was just saying that if your school wanted some of that sweet, sweet cash to fund its programs, then it had to pay a lot of obeisance to the abstinence-only party lines. A 2004 review by the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Government Reform found significant misinformation in 11 out of the 13 most popular abstinence-only education programs operating in American public schools. And a 2007 United Nations WHO evaluation returned similar results. Nevertheless, in 2008, Republican President George W. Bush signed into law $176 million more dollars for abstinence-only education. Breaking from the trend, the Obama administration budgeted $114 million for evidence-based comprehensive sex ed, but the Trump administration then returned to an abstinence-only focus. So what does the sex ed landscape look like today? As of the year 2020, 30 states and the District of Columbia require public schools to teach sex education in some way, shape, or form, and 28 of them require both sex education and AIDS-HIV education. Nine require HIV education even if there's no other sex education content of any sort. This doesn't mean that sex ed doesn't exist in those other 20 states, just that there's no state law requiring all schools to have it. Where sex education is a part of school curriculum, students usually encounter it somewhere between grades 6 and 12, although some schools address the topics as early as grades 4 or 5. However, and this is what I find particularly fascinating, even in those states where laws require sex ed has to be taught, only 22 require that sex ed and or HIV education must be, quote, medically, factually, or technically accurate, unquote. State definitions of this accuracy vary. Sometimes that means a Department of Health review, and sometimes it means that content has come from, quote, published authorities upon which medical professionals rely, unquote. But that means that in nine states, Sex ed can contain, well, pretty much anything that the educators want. This is a large part of how we got to that point I mentioned a few minutes ago, where those two major audits found widespread and rampant misinformation and inaccuracies being taught in abstinence-focused sex ed programs. But in many states, that's apparently completely legally okay. Most state laws mandate that abstinence-only education needs to be at least a part of the sex ed menu, and in 10 states, it's the only thing that can be taught. In 36 states and in the District of Columbia, parents can opt their children out of sex education, and five states are opt-in, meaning the parents have to give permission before their child can receive any sex ed instruction. Sexual health education as relates specifically to the lives of LGBTQ students remains a rarity. Only 10 states and the District of Columbia require sex education classes to be inclusive of all sexual orientations. And then there are seven states whose standards for sex ed include a deliberate promotion of heterosexuality as superior to, or somehow healthier than, homosexuality or bisexuality. 
and only eight states require discussion and exploration of the importance of consent in the sexual act. Now, again, we're talking about state standards here, which individual schools may honor, modify, or even ignore willy-nilly, because the kind of accountability mechanisms in place to check up on all of this are pretty darned minimal when compared with, say, those devoted to checking up on students' scores in reading and math tests. Basically, more so even than with all the other things related to American public schools, the landscape for sex education in this country is extremely variegated. Where you live and attend school as a student creates vast differences in what, if anything, you learn about sex, sexual health, pregnancy, disease, and skills for intimate partnerships. And with nearly 40% of all high school students reporting they've had sex, according to a 2017 CDC study, and 10% reporting they've had sex with four or more partners during their short lifetime, that's a lot of students whose lives have very practical and immediate applications for sex education, let alone all the other students who, while they might not be sexually active now, are almost certainly likely to be so at some point down the road in their lives. As sex is a near-universal aspect of human experience, it does seem to be a subject worthy of study, yet whether that study in education falls under the responsibility of public schools, and if so, what the boundaries of and prescriptive messages contained within that study should be, continues, even in the 21st century, to be a subject of intense debate and disagreement. What's my take? Well, I am keenly aware that children are always curious and always have an intense thirst for learning. They may not always have a thirst for learning what schools want to teach them, see our very second episode of this podcast in season one for more on that disconnect, but if there's something that young people are curious about, they will seek out knowledge wherever they can find it. That's what human beings do, and sex is something that young people are almost universally curious about. If schools aren't providing the education about sex that students are looking for, then those young people will turn to other sources, like the internet and the expansive world of pornography that it offers. Professor John Churbin of Harvard Medical School cites research that indicates that up to 90% of children from ages 8 to 16 utilize pornography as one means of learning about sex and sexuality. And as I hope we all know, pornography is about as authentic a representation of sex as the Star Wars trilogy is of actual space exploration. Having porn be your sex educator is kind of like learning about both meteorology and oceanography solely from watching the Sharknado movies. We would not want NASA or the National Weather Service to be populated by such graduates. And in the same way, I'm not sure it serves us well as a society to have such ill preparation for our real-life sexual and romantic relationships. It's deeply ironic that in seeking to preserve the innocence and purity of children, those who limit or ban sex education in schools may be inadvertently curating the sex education of kids to include only the crassest, most ridiculous, most toxic, and most abusive depictions of sex and sexuality. I'd like to think that, just as with what happens with the moral purity movement of the early 19th century, a desire to keep children from this sort of sex education might provide common ground for citizens both secular and religious, liberal and conservative. Ultimately, I think those of us across the political and religious spectrum can view the mission of public schools as one of preparing graduates for success in the real world, and one can view comprehensive sex education as a means towards doing just that. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. 
I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.